Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, and welcome to Career Sessions Career Lessons. Today, my guest is Andrew Messick, who I first met when we were both working at McKinsey's Chicago office back in the mid-1990s. Andrew is now the CEO of the Ironman Group, a role he has held for the past 11-plus years. Prior to taking the helm at Ironman, he was the president of the sports division for the entertainment company AEG. And prior to that, he was a senior vice president of international for the National Basketball Association. Before entering the sports management world, Andrew worked at McKinsey, as I mentioned, and then at Sarah Lee in a variety of marketing and business development roles in the UK and Australia and Canada. He is an experienced marathoner, road cyclist, and mountain biker himself. He's competed in four full-distance Ironman races, and he qualified for and raced in an Ironman 70.3 World Championship. He earned his bachelor's degree in economics and psychology from UC Davis and his MBA from the Yale School of Management. He and his wife and son live in Santa Barbara, California. Andrew, thanks for making time for our discussion today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's good to reconnect and it's good to talk about careers and what we've learned over our long years of grinding away. Yeah, true. I know from reading some of the interviews you've done in the past and some of the podcasts you've done in the past that you have a great career story to tell. So I'm looking forward to today, an endurance athlete myself, getting to connect with you and hear a little bit about the inside perspective of working with the Ironman group will be great. Let's talk first about your own Ironman experience. I know you've done a number of the full distance ones, which I have incredible respect for. My brother's done two. I have done zero. What's your favorite discipline of the swimming, cycling, and running? Well, I think that I like the cycling part the best, but relatively speaking, I'm a better runner. Yeah. And so I don't think anyone enjoys a marathon period, but I don't think anyone enjoys a marathon in an Ironman. Right. It's too late in the stage and everything hurts too much. Yeah. Um, but the bike course, I really like because you're seeing a lot of ground and there's kind of, it's long enough so that there's a beginning, a middle and an end to the bike session. Yeah. And you're never really at a sort of aerobic level where you can't talk to people. Yeah. So you can talk to volunteers, you can talk to other athletes. And so there's sort of a nice social component to it Yeah. that I really quite enjoy. Yeah. What's the toughest of the ones you've done? So I've done Lake Placid twice. I've done Montremblant up in Quebec. Uh, my first mm-hmm. was Ironman Canada. And all of them, relatively speaking, are on the harder sort of side of things in terms of yeah. courses because none of the courses are flat. I think Placid is probably the hardest because it's quite a hilly bike and it's quite a hilly run. Yeah. Especially later, the later stages, the hills are just not your friend, not going up them, not going down. And so I think Placid, I would have to say, is the hardest one that I've done. Yeah. I mean, I know Kona is Kona, right? It's had the mystique since the initial days, but I've always heard people talk with the most reverence about Lake Placid and what a tough fireman that one is. And getting into it is an accomplishment and being able to go do it and finish it is also an accomplishment. 
let's go back a little bit. So I know you're from the Southern California area originally. What was your first paying job? So I grew up in Santa Barbara, California. My parents taught at, at UC Santa Barbara. And my first job I was scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins when I was 16 oh, yeah. years old. Yeah. And so I did that when I was in high school. And then I waited tables at the Biltmore Hotel in Santa Barbara all during college. As I've gotten older, I realized that all of my early jobs were customer-facing jobs. And so my formative years, I wasn't working construction. I wasn't work. I was always talking to customers. Yeah. Over the course of my career, I've realized that I think that really helped me a lot just to be able to talk to people and mm. to be able to listen to people. And it was certainly while I was scooping ice cream in high school, right. I didn't think like, this is a great job. I'm like super psyched about it. But I think I learned a bunch of stuff that has proven to be pretty useful. And it was good for me to work when I was young and working with people, I think has really helped me. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us, to some extent, I mowed lawns. I've talked about that on some of the earlier episodes. And I learned how to ask for business, right? I learned how to do sort of soldier through it when it had rained a lot and the grass was really high and getting that lawn mode was going to be a huge hassle. And I'm sure you had those, those sort of similar experiences, even decades later, you kind of still carry with you. Yeah, I think those formative jobs when you're young and you're learning, what does it mean to go to work? What does it mean right, right. to try to do a good job? What does it mean to listen are all things that I think we tend to underestimate in those earlier years, but you look back and you say, and you look at people, some people who've been really successful, some people that have great tools, but maybe haven't been successful. And you look at them and you go like, why did your career come off the rails? Mm. And sometimes it's just because like, they just aren't good at listening. And maybe they didn't have experiences like the ones that we had, where you have to look people in the eye and have to shake their hand and you have to listen to what they're saying and process what they're saying. And sometimes you have to acknowledge that you're not always right. You made a mistake and you have to be prepared to like address all that. And so I think I feel very fortunate to have had a lot of the work experiences that I did when I was young, because in ways that certainly when I was at McKinsey, you don't appreciate. Yeah. When you're a McKinsey consultant, you don't think like that person's going to be a great consultant because they scooped ice cream when they were 16. Yeah. But sometimes those are like learning a lot of those skills really are difference makers for you later in the course of your career. You sort of fast forwarded a little bit. I Did you work in between, you said you went to UC Davis, I know you majored in economics and psychology. Was there, and then you went to Yale and got your MBA. Was there a job in between there or did you pretty much just go right into that master's program? No, no, I worked for a number of years and I moved to New York and worked in the advertising industry for okay. about three years. And it started with the old Ted Bates advertising agency in New York. And I got a job in the research department and I'm analytically reasonably strong. And so I was able to do reasonably well there. But I realized that the advertising world, at least the advertising world in the 80s, being on on the account management side is really, those are the more interesting jobs. Yeah. And so I moved into that and had an opportunity to go work for one of my clients, which I did for about a year. And then I realized that if I really wanted to advance in consumer packaged goods marketing, I needed to go to graduate school. And that led me to Yale. And then oddly enough, a lot of the experiences that I had working in advertising really were were ones that were useful for McKinsey and especially the consumer packaged goods practice in Chicago yeah. at McKinsey, yeah. which is how I ended up there after graduate school. Yeah. What led you to end up at McKinsey where you and I met way back in the day? You could have gone out of post getting your MBA, could have gone right back into 
the consumer packaged goods space directly, but you did a few years with consulting. So what drove that decision for you? Well, I liked sort of the intellectual rigor of being a consultant. I liked the, the notion of being able to, certainly as somebody who was, I was in my late 20s at that point, you get a chance to sort of punch above your weight a little bit. Yeah. And, and you get to focus on problems when you're quite young that you wouldn't necessarily get to focus on until you're a lot further along in your career. Yeah. You learn a lot. And the problem solving part, I really liked the idea of being able to go into an engagement and really be focused on what are in many cases, the most important problems that our clients are facing and helping them think both intellectually and organizationally, how do you solve those? That was really fun. And it was really attractive and the pay was pretty good too. Yeah. What do you feel like, you know, you talked a little bit about what you learned in advertising, what you learned from your ice cream scooping days. What do you really, apart from the problem solving aspect of being at McKinsey, what do you look back and say that you took away from that experience that fueled you later on? I think there's two things that, that I feel McKinsey really, really helped with that have proven to be enormously useful. One of them is the analytic problem solving of being able to get to the heart of the matter really, really quickly hmm. and to be able to, to have the skills and the experience to be able to strip away the things that are extraneous and understand what is the beating heart of an issue how do you bring information to bear to be able to prove that? How do you not boil the ocean? How do you really very quickly be able to frame a problem in a way that is going to be useful operationally to be able to solve it? And I think that's part of what you do every day, or at least what you did in the 90s when we were there. Right. It's just a huge part of what you do is like, what's really the problem we're trying to solve? And how do we yeah. convince ourselves that that's true? And that, over the entire course of my career, has just been enormously helpful. Then the second thing is team and project management, like the engagement manager skills of you're trying to get a bunch of people. Sometimes they're super capable. Sometimes they're people who have different levels of experience. And how do you organize them in a way that enables the team to be able to get to a result? And again, that's a critical part of being an engagement manager. And I think that has always been helpful to me because whenever you were trying to solve a problem at Ironman or in my AEG days or right. at Sara Lee, like being able to say, all right, these are the things we need to do. These are the tasks. Here's how we're going to organize ourselves. Here's how we're going to measure progress. All of those things have proven to be really useful to me over a period of decades. It's just day in, day out what we did for all those McKinsey years. Yeah, I think all excellent points. I also, I often describe to people that the pattern recognition, right? You walk into a lot of those situations, you're expected to hit the ground running. As you said a minute ago, you have to kind of figure out what problem we're we trying to solve and how do we prove whether we're right or wrong, right? Yeah. Sort of inference-based approach to solving a problem. But you get to see a lot of companies and a lot of cultures. And over time, you start to see patterns, right? And for me, that's always served me very well in, in my post-McKinsey life. You mentioned Sarah Lee a minute ago. What sort of drove the decision to go over there? I know you were in a few different countries working for them before we swap or move into the sports section of your career. Talk a little bit about what you did there and what you took away from that. Well, they were my client for my main client for the last couple of years that I was at the firm. And so I had an opportunity to move over into essentially working in a business development role on the client mm -hmm. side. And we made a series of acquisitions and they needed somebody to help sort of figure out what to do with them. And so the business unit that I had been serving was based in London. So we moved there and then we bought a company in Australia and they needed somebody to help 
sort of figure out what to do with it. And so we moved there. And then that business had an operating company in Western Canada. So I moved there. It was a really interesting period of time of trying to help sort of build a relatively, by Sarah Lee standards, a relatively small operating division. And through a series of acquisitions, how do you cobble it together and turn it into something that kind of resembles a global business? And that proved in later jobs to be really, really useful because it was a lot of that sort of broad international skills that made me attractive to the NBA. And when David Stern hired me you know, to, yeah. to run international for the NBA, it was because I'd spent a large amount of my career focused on working for American companies focused outside of the United States for a global basketball brand that proved to be really advantageous for me. I've read, I think you were working in Canada at the time, and it was one of those sort of classic stories of the phone rang, you took a phone call, and that ultimately led to your jump into the sports management world. Describe how that all played out. It wasn't just a phone call. It was a McKinsey phone call. It okay. was you know, Claudio Espezi, who's been like a great friend of mine for forever. And we worked together a lot at McKinsey. Interestingly enough, we're recording this call on Good Friday of 2022. The phone rang on before Good Friday of 2000. Yeah. And it was Claudio. And he said... I just got this interesting recruiter call from the NBA. They're looking for somebody to run their international businesses. They want a sports fan. They want somebody with PL experience. They want somebody who has international experience. They want somebody who has been consumer facing. And they want an American who understands like the power of the NBA brand. Yeah. And Claudio, who's an Italian national, although he's the most like American Italian you're ever going to meet, said, I told him I was the wrong guy, but you were the right guy. And so I hang up the phone. The recruiter calls me half an hour later and says, what are you doing tomorrow? And we're living at Calgary. He said, I'm flying to Calgary and will you have lunch with me? And so we have lunch on Good Friday, 22 years ago today. Wow. And I was getting ready on Easter Sunday. I was flying to the Netherlands to present my operating plan to Sara Lee management. And I get a call when I'm in the Netherlands saying, when you come back to North America, divert through New York, the commissioner wants to meet you. So I do. And so this is the next Thursday, this is I mean, literally almost exactly 22 years ago, I go to New York and I get like led into David Stern's office. He's got an office. He's got a conference room attached to it. And the conference room is soundproofed because the guy yells so much. Those like the David Stern stories are different stories. And I sit there for a while and he walks in and he has my resume and he reads his, he's holding his resume and he says, this is the first thing out of his mouth. I've looked at your resume. I suspect you think that for a guy your age, you've had a pretty good run so far, but I feel compelled to tell you, you really haven't done a damn thing. And I said, well, my name's Andrew and I'm pleased to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what got me into sports. And so I worked for David and I worked for Adam Silver and Adam was my boss for most of the seven years that I was there. Yeah. And it was great. I mean, this was when Yao Ming was coming into the league, when Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili and like this first great wave, right. maybe it was the second great wave of globalization of basketball. And it was terrific. It was really exciting. And it was a lot yeah. of fun. And I got an opportunity for seven years to really learn the sports business, which is, I mean, every business is unusual, but I think the sports business is particularly unusual. And to really see how... David and Adam thought about building a global brand. Mm. Like, how do you really think about building a global sports brand? And obviously that 
has proven to be pretty useful to me as I've thought about trying how do you build Ironman into a global sports brand. There's a bunch of us who are ex-NBA people who are at Ironman now, and we're, we mine the NBA playbook every day. Yeah. Prior to getting that call from Claudio, I mean, did you have designs on getting into sports management or had you not thought that precisely about things? I've never considered it. Yeah. I mean, I've been an athlete most of my life, not a good one, but one who's passionate. I've been deeply engaged in sports. I've been a fan, I'm a spectator. Like sports has been a big part of my life, but I never, never thought about making my living in sports and was actually quite ambivalent about taking the job. And it was a big leap. It was a massive career change. I was doing well at Sara Lee. I felt like I had a future there. I understood how to get ahead and how to do a good work and how to advance in that company and in that culture. Mm. But it really came down to a conversation that I had with my wife who told me, you've been passionate about sports your whole life. It doesn't matter if it's a good job. What matters is that you not regret it. Yeah. And that if you have an opportunity to make your living in sports and you care as much about sports as you do, you will kick yourself forever if you don't try it. Yeah. And that was probably the single best piece of career advice I've ever gotten. And which is sometimes you do things and they don't work out and you get egg on your face and like that happens. But in general, you rarely look back on those with regret, but but you do look back on things you didn't do with regret. And Mm -hmm. Why didn't I take this opportunity? I don't remember why I didn't do this really exciting thing. I had some reason at the time, but what you remember is that you don't do it. Yeah. And so I took the leap and we moved back to New York and started working in the sports business, which, as I said earlier, is a pretty different animal. What surprised you most? I mean, you're a passionate sports guy. You get a job that's arguably a dream job for anybody who's a sports fan. But what was surprising other than David Stern's intro? Once you got on the inside. I'd spent all these years at McKinsey thinking about strategy, like strategy with a capital S. And one of the things that I really learned at the NBA is there's much less strategy with a capital S than I thought. What there is, is individual agreements. It's more of a deal type of transaction. You have a strategy, you know where you want to go, but you have to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement with your players. And you negotiate the best agreement you can. And then you have to negotiate an agreement with your broadcasters. And then you need every, the way the business is run is is this sequence of individual transactions, Mm -hmm. of individual negotiated agreements. And you kind of have a strategic true north, but really what you're trying to do is you're trying to do the best deal you possibly can. How do you create leverage for yourself in the future? And it's much more detailed focused than what we used to think about at McKinsey. And David always used to say that there's only detail. There's only detail. And if you've got the most important person from one of your partner organizations is coming to an event, you have to make sure that person's wife is picked up at the airport. Mm -hmm. Because if the car to pick up the wife or husband, for that matter, of one of your most senior partner executives doesn't get picked up at the airport, that executive isn't going to talk about anything else other than my partner's at the airport, but when is he or she going to get collected? Right. Like you have to get the details right. And if you don't, like all the other stuff doesn't matter. And we see that in sport, the games have to start on time. The referees have to show up. They have to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. There needs to be fair implementation of whatever your disciplinary procedure is. You have to be able to allocate the games in a particular, in a particular season to the different broadcasters in a way that's fair. And if you don't, that's all your broadcasters want to talk about. 
these guys got the Laker games or the Golden State games, and you can't get past that. Yeah. Like there's super detailed orientation that I was unaccustomed to, that you spend so much time on little stuff. Yeah. And it's the little stuff that becomes the platform for being able to do the big stuff. And that was really a revelation to me. And again, it's proven to be useful in my current job. And because of what I tell the organization all the time is if you have to have ice at the aid station at mile 24 of the run close, right? There needs to be ice there because if there isn't like that for the athletes, that's a huge problem. And that's what they're going to remember. They're going to remember right. you ran out of water. Yeah. They're going to remember you lost their gear bag. And so you have to build an organization that pays attention to all of that stuff. Yep. And so you're running Boston on Monday. The bus has to arrive on time. Mm -hmm. And if the bus that's going to take you to Hopkinton doesn't show up on time, you don't care about strategy. It's like, I want my bus because I need to yeah. get to the start so I can have the race that I want. And when I get there, there needs to be bathrooms. There needs to be water. There mm -hmm. needs to be a place for me to drop all of my excess clothes. And like all of that stuff has to be dialed in. And so you find yourself with an organization that's built around the delivery of that. Yeah which is both good and bad. You know, the good part is that there's this focus all through the organization on attention to detail, yeah. on making sure that the little things are done right. Because if you can't do the little things right, how can you do the big things right? Yeah. But at the same time, the challenge is at some point, you do need to be thinking about the big picture. And what does this aggregation of individual decisions that are made when it all rolls together, is it taking you to the place you want to go? And so... For me, that's one of the most interesting parts of my job is we need to have an organization and a company that's like laser focused on delivering a great experience. The bus right. is there for you. Right. The timing chip works. The tracking app works so that your family knows where you are at mile 13. Mm -hmm. Like all that stuff has to work. And it's an outdoor event. It takes place over a broad distance. It's not like you're operating in an arena. Like all that stuff is hard. Yeah. But you have to get it right. And that becomes table stakes for all the other things you want to do about how do yeah. you build loyalty among your athletes? How do you get people to race with you more? How do you build the brand and be able to leverage other aspects of the brand? Like that NBA experience, it was like, welcome to detail. Yeah. And you need to have like the details really, really tight. Yeah. I mean, you've described detail a lot, but you mentioned the word experience a, a minute or so ago. I mean, ultimately, yeah. a lot of what you're describing is about getting the customer experience nailed, right? Yep. And there's a tremendous amount of attention that's getting. We've got more and more companies having like chief customer experience officers and things like that. And especially in the business you're in, you've got people who are putting themselves out physically, mentally, emotionally to compete in a very hard race that they've been training for months and months for, for things not to go as well as can be expected that day, right? Weather and other factors coming in. I mean, you've got to deliver for them because they've really put themselves out to be there. For a typical Ironman athlete, they're going to train for a year mm -hmm. for the event. And during that year, they're thinking about the race every single day. Mm -hmm. Am I training enough? Am I training too much? Do I have the right equipment? Do I have the right nutrition? It's this extraordinary engagement of these really capable people. Yeah. And that creates a huge responsibility for us. And one that I think we all take pretty seriously. And yes, I'm an athlete too, but like the people who I train with, the people who I see on the weekends, the people who I see at races, these are all people who I've known and in many cases known for a long time. Mm. And, and I think we all feel the, the pressure and the responsibility to make sure all the little things are right. Because 
collectively they do make a difference. And yeah, it is a bit of a you know, joke within the company that I'm always talking about this hypothetical aid station at mile 24 of the run course. Yeah. But like when you're two miles away and you've been at it for 13 hours and all of a sudden there isn't food there. Yeah. There aren't calories. It's the heat of the day and there isn't ice. Right. Like, that's a problem. And so reinforcing that sort of attention to detail really matters because that's part of what I think differentiates us as an operating company is we do 250 events a year. And if we're not the best in the world at delivering this athlete experience, we should be. No one has more repetitions. No one has a better opportunity to leverage best practices. No one has a better platform to be able to experiment, to try different things and to see what really works and what is better. And we do all of that. And I think we do view ourselves as an organization who should be the best. Because if we're not, then why not? We're the biggest organizer of mass participation supporting events in the world. We should be the ones that have the most knowledge and the best processes and who understand our customers the best. I mean, you've got, obviously, it's an incredibly well-known brand, instantly recognizable. Describe the organization, though, like how many people work in the organization? How many countries are you in? You talked about running 250 events a year. I know you've had some sort of changes in ownership over the years. Give people a little bit of a sense of Iron Man, the company. We have 250 events, 55 countries around the world, 30 offices in 17 countries. The whole question of how many employees we have is, is surprisingly difficult to answer just because as a seasonal event business, we have around 700 like full-time, 12-month-a-year employees we probably have another that many, again, of what we call seasonal full-time people. They're ski patrol people in the winter mm-hmm. and they come on and they work from May to October on events. And they're you know, a part of our operating teams around the world. And then we have a few thousand people who are contractors for certain events. And then we have a few thousand volunteers at every race. So when you start thinking about what's the total span of the organization, it's anywhere from 700 to 10,000, depending on what definition you want to use. Yeah, fair enough. And it's a really, to me, it's an interesting business. I mean, you sit at the intersection of, you've got race locales, as you mentioned, in 55 countries. You've got corporate sponsors who support the events. You've got the athletes themselves, arguably the most type A client base imaginable. You've got an army of volunteers you depend on. How do you balance the needs and expectations of all those groups? Well, this was a big part of my first five years in the job, which is Mm. really trying to identify what is the brand and what are the critical brand standards? What does it mean for a race to be an Ironman branded race? What are the promises that we're implicitly or explicitly making to our athletes around experience, course, all of that stuff? And so as we've gotten better at it, I think we've built an organization that is getting pretty good at being able to say, for any Ironman race around the world or Ironman 70.3 race, and to a lesser extent, we also own the Rock and Roll Running Series. We own the Epic Series of Mountain Biking Events. We're partners in UTMB and Ultra Trail Running. And we have the Hope Route Cycling Series as well. But from an Ironman perspective, we're probably the furthest along really thinking about what is that fundamental brand promise? What are the things that have to be the same everywhere in the world? And what are the things that you want to be different? You want Ironman New Zealand to feel different from Ironman California and you want that to feel different from Ironman France. Mm. But at the same time, you want to be recognizable as an Ironman event. You want an athlete who might live in Perth, Western Australia to be able to like look around our portfolio of races and have confidence that there's going to be like a bedrock experience irrespective of what continent that race is in. 
But you also want the racing experience for the person who travels from Perth to Nice, France. You don't want it to be identical. You want Nice to feel uniquely French and uniquely Cote d'Azur. And, and so like finding that balance, there's quite a bit of art in that. Yeah. But the core promise of you're going to get an extraordinary experience, the finish line is going to be amazing, you're going to be supported, it's going to be safe. All of those things are like bedrock operating principles. And we've done a ton of work over the years to really build out what does it mean to deliver a great racing experience to an athlete. And we're doing that in all the other brands too, recognizing that trail runners are really different from triathletes. Trail runners are really different from road runners. And so the rock and roll experience in Las Vegas is going to be very different from the race I'll be at next weekend, which is the Canyons Endurance Run in Auburn, California, Mm -hmm. which takes place on the Western States Endurance Run course. But we want to be able to make sure that we're delivering a great athlete experience to everybody. What those people are looking for and what we deliver is different by brand because these populations of endurance athletes, there's some overlap and certain similarities, but they're really quite different and they're quite distinct. And so all of that complexity, we find ourselves delivering across regions. And so our team in New Zealand, and one of the reasons we have all of these offices around the world is that part of the event business, it's a very local business. You need the mayor to give you permission. You need the local health and safety guy to say, okay, we're going to have ambulances. You need the local water safety people to say, here's the extraction protocol if someone gets in trouble on the swim and how are we going to get them out of the water? Mm -hmm. You need local people to say yes to all that stuff. And so what we found over the years is that if you want to have a business in New Zealand, you need an office in New Zealand and you need it full of Kiwis. Mm -hmm. And having Australians fly across the Tasman is just not the same. And having Germans go into Austria is not the same. And having French people go into French-speaking Belgium is not the same. And so there's this very local component to our business as well because these races are implemented in local communities where we're using public waterways, we're using public roads, using public infrastructure. And so part of the reason that we're not a huge company, but we've got Mm -hmm. people all over the place because you have to, if you're going to organize the events and get the people who need to say yes to say yes. And I think like your move to St. George, as you talked about with me earlier for this year's world championship is an, an example of where local policy in this case, just the impracticalities of trying to hold an event in Hawaii with COVID continuing to hit, it ultimately affects what you're able to deliver. And so maintaining that level of local support must be incredibly important to the future continued success of the business. And this goes back to you know a lot of the, like the old McKinsey frameworks that we learned. You've got for every event, the event's going to take place within a, a particular community. Yeah. And there's concentrated benefits and diffuse costs associated with the event business. It's very easy to be able to say, okay, we're going to bring 5,000 athletes and their friends and family, and it's going to translate into a certain number of hotel room nights, and there's going to be a certain amount of lift in restaurants. And those constituents love our events. 10 miles out of town near the bike course, when the mother and father are trying to get their kids to saxophone lessons, right? and the road's closed because the bike course is going through, maybe they don't like the event quite as much. Right. And so part of, again, the art of what we're doing is trying to balance and manage the community impact, recognizing that there's people for whom the events are unambiguously a good thing. Yeah. And there's people who, for whom they appreciate that the event's taking place, they like it, but they're inconvenienced. Yeah. And how do we help manage those people through that? How do we communicate with them effectively? How do we 
support organizations that we think are being disproportionately impacted. That's a lot of what we do too, because we want to be welcomed back into the community year after year after year. And it just doesn't happen by itself. It requires effort. Effort and nurturing and all of that. To deliver that consistent experience, right? And then manage that level of detail. What do you look for most in your leadership team and in the broader culture of the company that helps deliver that in a consistent fashion? Where I try to start with is for people to appreciate the psyche of our customers and the athletes and to put yourself in the athlete's shoes. And you've trained for a year. It's all coming down to one day. Yeah. And you have to understand what it feels like to be an athlete with a race number pinned on the front of your shirt. And then you work backwards from there. And so how does the registration process work? How does the race process work? What does the branding look like? How do we integrate with our partners? How do we think about content and media distribution? All of those things, it's helpful if you're thinking with the athlete in mind. And so as we think about what are the values that we appreciate, what do we look for in leadership, is this understanding that it doesn't matter if you're in operations or in sales or in marketing or in IT or in finance, the delivery of the race experience is the beating heart of the company. And so I think what I look for mostly is people who have the ability to make that pivot around, I have functional expertise or I have geographic expertise. Am I able to translate that into delivering a great experience for your customer? Yeah. And if that's too big a leap, and there's always people for whom the customer is not the friend, but customer is the person you have to tolerate. Those are folks who have a hard time in our organization. I can easily see that. You had kind of a pivotal moment 22 years ago, as we talked about earlier in the discussion. Was it sort of that led you into feeling like you were clear on what you wanted to do with your professional life? Or when did that moment occur for you, that moment of longer term clarity? I was being interviewed for the Ironman job. And yeah. I spent seven years at the NBA and they were great years and I loved it. But I was never a basketball guy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a basketball junkie. I didn't play. I was a fan of, of basketball, but it was never like my top sport. And, and so being interviewed by Ironman and one of the owners, a guy named Barry Allen, the former chairman of the board of Harley Davidson, who was our, our board chair. He's like, Andrew, why would you do this? And I was like, like, I've been an endurance athlete a long time. And like, mm. there's no better job. Mm-hmm. There's no better organization. There's no better brand. And for me to be able to have personal passion, by the time I got the job, I'd completed two Ironman races. I'd qualified for 70.3 Worlds and raced in it. I was a paid in full member of the endurance community. Right, right. And to be able to make your living and have influence on the preeminent brand in a segment where you have enormous personal passion. How many shots at that do you get in your career? And so like, it was super easy. It was like the easiest decision ever. And again, maybe it wouldn't have worked out, maybe, but it did. And I felt like by all the times over the course of my career where I said, I'm the man for the job, what is the job? I moved to Amsterdam with McKinsey. I took a leap and moved to London with Sara Lee. I moved countries within Sara Lee. I was always the person who was willing to say, I'm prepared to uproot my life because there's a better opportunity. There's a more compelling career. And it turns out really by serendipity that the vast majority of those leaps that I took were useful to me in this role. I've worked a lot in Europe. I've worked in Australia and New Zealand. I've worked in Asia. I've got a lot of experience. I've worked in global sports. I've worked on global brands. I understand sales and marketing. Like All of these things turns out to have been really useful for me as I've thought about and worked with our team to really build Ironman. 
But I tell this to young people all the time. I always get the sense that they're disappointed. There wasn't a master plan. Yeah. Like when I was 27, I wasn't like, when I'm 40, I'm going to be running Ironman. I was trying to do good work and put myself in a position where I had options. And it worked out. It's worked out so far. It has worked out so far. 2022 is going to be a challenging year. So we'll see. Yeah. Sure. It feels good to be able to get more of your event back on the schedule relative to the last couple of years. But there's definitely some long-term things that the pandemic has changed in the way the world works. Before we started, we are talking about hybrid and what's the definition of work and so many other ways as well. So I wish you the best of luck as things are going forward. You've been super generous with your time. And I know we've committed to keep this to an hour today. Any final thoughts you want to share for people who are listening? I've said this a lot, you've probably heard this, but I think it is worth saying that for young people in particular, I know that I felt this way. I felt that people who were more senior in the organization were always like trying to figure out who is going to advance and who isn't. And as I've been on the other side of that table, what I realize and what I tell people is that people in organizations are desperate for talented and motivated individuals. Mm. And that as a senior person in an organization, you spend a huge amount of time saying, like, how do we find a person who can solve this problem for us? How can we find a leader who can address this need for us? And so the advice that I give young people always is Andrew's rules of advice. I've got like three pieces of advice and they add up to 10 words. First piece of advice, do good work. I'd be the person whose work is accurate. It's on time. It's complete go the extra mile. And because people who do that are extraordinarily valuable and they're rare. It's not like there's a million people in any organization whose work is like, you look at it and it's not full of mistakes and it's not incomplete. And so do good work. That's the first thing. Yeah. And the second thing is take your chances. If you do good work, you're going to be given opportunities in the company you're in or in another company. And you'll be given an opportunity to grow, to stretch, to move to a different part of the company, to lead a new initiative, to take on more responsibility. And it's always amazed me over the course of my career, how many people say no to that? How many people say, there's a great opportunity, but you have to move? Oh, like there's the list of reasons why you don't do it. Your family, your spouse, your kids, your mortgage, whatever. But so many people say no. And I've always said yes. And so yes, it's disruptive. It's harder than the status quo. But if you take your chances, you avail yourself to so many new opportunities. And so I always tell people to take your chance. If you're given like a remarkable opportunity to go do something, even if it's scary, say yes to it. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And then the third advice is don't be a jerk. And for the course of our careers, the arc of your career is long. And over time, if you get a reputation as a good person to work with, someone who's honest, someone who's candid, someone who doesn't play political games, that reputation really helps you down the road. And it's been remarkable to me how many people I keep seeing and keep stumbling across. And so your reputation really matters. And if you're not honest, if you stab people in the back, if you're unkind, people remember it. Yeah, they do. And if you're honest and straight and a good person to be around and somebody who is wanted on the teams, I'd like Jane to be on the team. Everyone goes, yeah, I I like Jane. I like working with Jane. That's the kind of thing that helps you over time in your career. So that's the three pieces of advice I give people. Do good work, take your chances, don't be a jerk. 10 words, Very one simple. word for each finger. Works great. All right, why don't we uh, bring it to a close there? This has been great, Andrew. Okay. I really appreciate it. It's been nice to reconnect and it's been a really long time. And as I said a few minutes ago, I wish you 
and the organization the best for this year as you kind of manage your way, hopefully back into something resembling more a normal course of normal schedule for your organization. Well, I appreciate that. It's been fun, JR. And I wish you the very best of luck in Boston on Monday. I wish I was there. It's one of those events where you feel like the whole running world is there and you're at the center of the beating heart of running. And that's always a special feeling. And I know you're going to have a great time. Yeah, it'll be, uh, like I said to you earlier, it's been a long time since I've run on the course. I'm really looking forward to it. And hopefully we'll have a good day. You never know completely how it's going to go until you're out there. But the important part is, yeah, I've raised a bunch of money and that's what matters. And this is sort of the reward in a way for that. So, okay. all right. Again, thanks, Andrew. Have a good day. All right. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.